Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favorite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalized bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! Jeez! He's round the goalkeeper! He's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of an out giving him lip. What are the unwritten laws of football? Have we found the worst ever song about referees? What is the most emphatic refereeing hand gesture of all? And just how famous are the likes of Clattenburg, Pole and Dean allowed to be? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Access to The Athletic is just £1 a month. Go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Before we begin to navigate the laws of the game, let me introduce my assistants, my Darren Can, my Mike Malarkey. First of all, Michael Cox, how are you? Hi, very well. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for inviting me back. That's all right. I hear you've played a little bit of foot golf this week. Yeah, first and probably last outing of the summer was uh, yesterday. Lovely uh, pitch and putt course down in Horsham. It was great. Is this 18 holes? No, this was just a nine hole. Right. They've converted the old pitch and putt uh, golf course into a foot, uh, foot golf course. It's great. It's some really good holes, actually. There's one hole where I insisted on it being filmed because I thought I might get a hole in one um, oh. and ended up with six on that hole. Oh, no. So what, what are you carding on average for nine holes at foot golf? I got. I think the winner got thirty-five. So um, yeah, it, it's a difficult course. I think had we gone around a second time, you know, you get to know the course and you know where the hills are and stuff. So I think we would have improved. But yeah, if you if you uh, haven't played, Horsham is a great one to start on. And finally, which which Premier League player would you most back on a foot golf pitch? Ah, uh, that's skill set. Good question. I mean, a dead ball specialist. I'm thinking. I've got Virgil Van Dijk in my head. Just. You, you want someone who can ping it effortlessly and then with, yep. a, with a little bit of calmness in these in the putting situations. Yeah, I think that works. You don't I need think... a finisher. You don't need a finisher, do you? You wouldn't need an Aguero because you're not firing it into the bottom corner, do you? You're right. Although what I'd say is surprisingly, I think there's a lot of situations where being able to use your, your weaker foot could come in handy. Alongside you, Dan Barnes also makes a triumphant return to the cliches pod. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Although I haven't, I didn't get an invite to play foot golf in Horsham, so now I feel a little no, bit sad. No, me neither. Me neither. It's only down the road from me as well. I'm disappointed. Uh, but you will be delighted to know that uh, I am wearing my um, replica Italia 90 referee shirt for this for this very special occasion. <laughs> <laughs> I've only worn it twice, both for podcasts. Uh, this is not entirely what I bought it for, but uh, I'm still yet to find another another occasion for it. Before we get stuck into the real nuts and bolts of today's episode, um, I want to talk about some serious FA Cup drama. 
last night. Michael, you may have seen uh, Ollie Hogg's penalty for Aylesbury United against Moneyfields in the FA Cup first qualifying round. Some context here before we listen, and, and I say listen to this clip because the audio is all you would ever need for this. The context being, this was at 2-2 in the 87th minute. He just scored a penalty three minutes before this. And then he scored again in the resultant shootout and they still lost. So I'm not sure whether to blame him for this entire defeat or not. <laughs> As I said, this you don't need to see this. The, the All the audio in this clip tells you everything you would ever need to know about this penalty. <laughs> everything about that's great. We get the very distinct, oh no, a little ripple of laughter, the boom of the ball. And it's so obviously going into the stratosphere. Everything about it is wonderful, isn't it? It's just extraordinarily high. I don't think I could, you know, if I was trying, I wouldn't be able to get that much elevation on the penalty. It's extraordinary. <laughs> Dan, I guess this guy was in a bit of a quandary. He'd just taken a penalty a few minutes before. So much must have been going through his head. I'm amazed he even scored in the shootout in the end, actually. Yeah, it does make you wonder what Aylesbury United practice on the training pitch, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> do they practice shootouts? bit like England but yeah I know I mean I'd just love to know the thought press of what he was planning to do I mean mm. of course I'm sure he second guessed himself but uh, I, I'm pretty certain it was not to uh, to hit it that high. My initial research into this guy because first of all I wanted to find out who it was and then uh, within seconds I, I also discovered this, he's having a roller coaster of, of a week it sounds a few days ago he scored um, a sort of Paul Scholes style volley from the edge of the area from a sort of uh, loose ball thumped it into the top corner so this guy's having an absolute roller coaster of a of a current footballing existence. So uh, I, I don't know what next lies in store for Ollie Hogg, but I hope it's something good. Next in the FA Cup first qualifying round, Hashtag United, Michael, have moved within 11 games of Wembley. How do you feel about Hashtag United? I sense you're pro them. I watch a lot of non-league football and a, a lot of my mates are kind of fuming at the rise of this kind of fake club <laughs> who don't represent an area and all that kind of thing. But to me, it seems, I mean, there's such a big kind of online football community that's grown in, in the last few years, which I yeah. suppose to a certain extent we are part of. And this seems to have been a, quite a rare example of, you know, them kind of transferring that to real life. And it seems like there's a generation of kids who, you know, without wanting to sound too much like uh, your granddad, are kind of following <laughs> football online and have been, yeah. you know, convinced to kind of go and watch this kind of, you know, non-league side. And it just seems like quite a nice vibe to me. Dan, I mean, in terms of artificial football, Football clubs. These are. This is a perhaps at the wholesome end of the spectrum. We're not talking about MK Dons here, are we? We're talking about <laughs> a club that um, is getting to an organic kind of stage where they're growing fairly naturally, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, opposition fan banter must have. Uh, they must really have to. It really makes them think a little bit, you know, because mm. you've got no history, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, you know, or I don't know any kind of thing that an opposition defender says in a hashtag United number nine's ear is, uh, you know, is, uh, they can't really be very very creative, you know, like oh. Look at you, Mr. Twitter man. I don't know, but it's uh, but yeah, no, I think it's a good thing. Like you know, look, it's like I said, it's a uh, it's nice to be to be different. Like I said, they're they're reaching out to sort of a new a new fan base, aren't they? And uh, and, and you know, more power to them. I, my only my only kind of reservation here is that the hashtag itself just feels a little bit 2012. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like they don't feel particularly avant you know avant garde with their name, um, regardless of how thoroughly modern they may be elsewhere. But looking forward to see how they progress. I'm sure they've got um, a, a similarly silly named club in the next round. But let's get on to the main event here. First of all, I want to talk about the unwritten laws of football. Um, the laws of the game, Michael, uh, confound us uh, on an almost annual basis. And I don't want to get into VAR. I don't want to get into handball. I want to get into the more kind of hidden commandments and cardinal sins 
of football. I'll kick you off with one. This is perhaps more of the cardinal sin subcategory, which is standing and admiring a pass. I feel like I'm quite guilty of that because I think that's what you should do with lovely crossfield passes. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, on the rare occasion that I play one, it just looks beautiful to stand and admire. I probably care about, well, I do care about watching my own great pass more than I care about what the player receiving the ball does with it. Foot golf is entirely about standing and admiring your pass. That's it, it, You're just standing there and watching its trajectory. So you must, you must spend a lot of your time doing that. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a much better foot golf player than I am a football player. I can assure you of that. But uh, okay. yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a few examples. I think, was it mm. um, Hakim Ziyech played that one in the in the Champions League for Ajax a couple yeah. of years ago where um, it's not just him standing and admiring. It's the, the fact that the, the camera shot lingers on the right angle for it and it just looks beautiful. So yeah, yeah. I have no issue with the player doing that. Irresponsible behaviour from from BT Sport, if anything, sort of encouraging a whole generation of players to standard and buy their crossfield passes. I worry for that unwritten law of football. Dan, perhaps more more obvious uh, territory here is is the waving of an imaginary card. Now, um, I've been at pains to point this out before. That is a collection of very silly words um, put together, and I can't ever imagine it ever appearing in, in in a PDF of FIFA's laws of the game. And yet it is very much still frowned upon, isn't it? Yeah, it's very much. I, I, do we do we still sort of clutch our pearls in this country and try and say it's I sort of so, a, yeah. a European invention or something yes, like that? Yes, I'm sure we do. I'm sure. And we I, also, do. I also wonder: is it still because they used to sort of be the kind of um, inference that if you did uh, wave the imaginary card, then straight away you would get a real one flashed back at you by the referee? And I, I yeah. don't really see that being. Uh, I don't really feel like I've seen that being enforced very much recently. I don't know. I think there's a general clamp down on sort of um, yeah. cynical uh, dissent. So I imagine if you if you if you if you if you were close enough to the referee and he saw it, I think you'd probably get one in return. My main beef, Dan, with with imaginary card waving is 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 the technique. Generally, it's 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 kind of it's a a thumb and forefinger, which I guess is about right for card holding. But but it's kind of just, they genuinely just do waggle it. What what I'd really like them to see is actually pull it from a an imaginary pocket, <laughs> and then write down an imaginary name. I think, feel like you should go. You know, the whole hog. Precisely. If you're trying to tell the referee what to do, I mean, do you do a no look card? Do you do you point to the player who should be getting it? You know, there should, <laughs> yes. there should, there should be some more use in the uh, in the. Uh, yeah, if you're gonna do it, some more really, really go it. for it. Yeah, yeah. completely. More technique, um, please. Yeah, Michael. Other other kind of moral quandaries that that can't really ever kind of find themselves into the real laws of the game. Swapping shirts at half time in full view of the fans that really gets people going. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I understand why. I don't think you mm-hmm. should be. Do- I don't think you should be swapping shirts at half time. I think while you're still in in battle, if you want to swap your shirt yeah. from the first half, I think you should wait till full time and do two exchanges if needed. <laughs> um, but is it one of those incidents that perhaps kind of scratches away at the, the veneer of authenticity here? Because maybe it just so happens that lots of footballers get along, or maybe even further, some footballers just don't care about the tribal side of things. Um, is it fair that they should have to? keep up this act uh, I think so I think when mm-hmm. there's I mean not that we're we're in that situation at the moment but when there's kind of 70,000 people who have you know based their whole day and based the whole you know spent a lot of money to basically participate in this rivalry I think yeah <laughs> I think you should kind of play along with it even if you don't care not in not in a, you know in nasty or cynical terms but yes stuff like swapping shirts at half time I must say I do find that quite annoying it's like going to like a secret cinema or something and then one of the actors suddenly starts, starts talking to you normally or something like that that's the, that's the <laughs> level of uh, expectation we have from our footballers now now I do see your point of course uh, on to more mundane um, examples Dan it's an eternal rule unwritten rule of football it seems that you should never make a sub before defending a corner mm-hmm. uh, and then 
whenever I do see a, a club doing that, presumably out of sheer necessity, when we see that player trotting on, I think, oh, they're in real trouble here. Is this just a psychological thing? Yeah, it has to be. I think it must come from sort of the uh, the big book of football management, 1992 <laughs> edition. Also, I say 1992, I think I meant 1922. Um, oh, right. I st- I, yeah, I'd love someone to tell me why what what uh, what disadvantage that get that really does give you as if uh, as if suddenly you know everyone's forgotten who they're marking or or anything like that or it's a real sign of a you know like you said a sort of anticipation that you know or that whoever's gone off is definitely gonna de- that person is definitely not gonna have been told who to mark at a corner because yeah, if they just yeah. sort of go yeah go on and just play a bit even though there's a set piece. You're absolutely right. That there could be a very, very boring, mundane reason for this, which is, you know, you, we've all seen the laminated set piece folders that substitutes have to read through. You know, oh. um, defending corners is is quite a complicated thing, and uh, you know, upsetting the apple cart by actually, you know, swapping a player probably might might have an issue. So I can kind of see it from that perspective. But I also think the real theory behind it is is from the fans' perspective, we're all essentially pessimists by nature so we think that <laughs> something terrible might happen at all times so therefore you know making a sub before defending in a corner is only just going to uh, bring us closer to this terrible catastrophe that's about to happen so I think it just most of these things do tend to tap into pessimistic fans mentality actually there was an interesting example last season Adam where um, I was down at the Amex covering Brighton against Norwich filling in for our Norwich reporter uh, Michael mm. Bailey and Daniel Farker made a double substitution um, mm. at 1-0 down just as Brighton were lining up a kind of wide free kick. Right. Uh, and Brighton scored from it. Shane Duffy, I think, stood the ball <laughs> in the far post. And I was I was there to cover Norwich, so I felt that at the post-match press conference, I had to raise this issue <laughs> of why he'd made a double substitution just before free kick. And I went down to the press conference thinking... I'm not sure whether this is like a nonsense English football cliche or whether Mm. there's some tactical merit in it. And luckily, before I could ask the question, Daniel Farker very earnestly said, I was actually really disappointed in myself because it's one of my principles. I never make a substitution. (laughs) One of his principles. Wow. So so this this is a thing. It's a pan-continental thing. That's that's nice And and he really, he didn't bill it as like a kind of accident he, he really he was talking about as if like he'd betrayed his philosophy you know yeah. and it, it was really clearly quite fundamental to his footballing beliefs yeah, it seems quite an easy thing not to do do you know I, i'm fairly <laughs> sure it's pretty easy to you know just wait for the corner to be taken this podcast is brought to you by hymns if you haven't heard of them they're basically your best mate when it comes to those tricky men's health problems Balding is an awkward topic for men, yet a lot of us start to lose our hair before we hit 40, and the best way to take control of hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some. Hims was created to make it easier for guys to seek care, especially guys who avoid seeing their doctor in person for awkward health issues. Not everyone wants to have personal conversations face-to-face with a stranger in a white coat, so Hims connects you with real doctors online, which could save you hours. It's completely confidential and discreet. You'll get a proper consultation, and they'll give you sound advice on what you can do to help your hair before it's too late. It couldn't be easier to book your free consultation. Just go to forhims.co.uk forward slash athletic. That's forhims.co.uk forward slash athletic. More subtle things, Dan. This is this is probably more for, for co-commentators. Oh. They really despise strikers who don't look across the line um, to check if they're offside. Uh, that, that seems to be one of the um, real cast iron unwritten laws. True. Although if you, you talk about it from a co-commentary perspective, that does give you the... Uh... If your co-commentator or your summariser is, is a former striker themselves, it gives you that lovely uh, lovely commentator's uh, flourish to go, oh, you would have looked a line across the line there, wouldn't you, Alan Smith? That kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. They get really annoyed about it, Michael, because uh, um, they always say, oh, it's, you know, it's such an easy thing to do. All you can do is have a little look. Um, I'm sure there's more going on in a striker's mind, personally. 
Yeah, and, and also I tend to think that strikers get too much criticism for this because sometimes it's the midfielder takes an extra touch yep. so they the pass isn't released quickly enough. So I find it annoying when the striker always gets the blame when really they were, you know, probably making the right run, just the pass didn't come. Yeah, it's more of an occupational hazard, isn't it? Perhaps into, into the territory here of things that you you kind of get away with that you perhaps oughtn't to according to the the wording of the laws of the game first of all the referee's habit of blowing the full-time whistle when the ball seems to be in its safest possible position usually um, after a goal kick michael this is a source of mild irritation over the years or do you think there's any reason behind it no i I do find it quite irritating i think it was the arsenal west ham game the other day where there was a a situation before half time where west ham had a free kick and for some reason spent about 30 seconds lining it up and mm-hmm. as soon as they launched the ball downfield, the whistle went. And it, yeah, it does seem a, a bit of a waste of time, doesn't it? There's two situations here. First of all, it's it's sheer timekeeping. And uh, I care about that less because, you know, you know, a few seconds here or there aren't, isn't going to affect my life. The side of it that really bothers me, Dan, is that if my team are chasing a game in the last minute and the ball goes out for a goal kick, I then know that that is going to be the end of the game before the whistle is even blown. So you have that, what, eight to ten seconds of irritating weight before you know that the full whistle was blown. Looking back at any times my team have been chasing a, ga- uh, a goal in the last minute, that's when I'm turning off my TV because I know the game is over. So there have been so many final whistles that I've missed purely out of irritation um, <laughs> at this mini refereeing phenomenon. Uh, I hope you share my frustration here. Yeah, I do. I think you're absolutely right. I, I feel for the uh, for the players as well because obviously they're sort of that sort of uh, whatever it is, that kind of um, chemical hit of, uh, of, of sort of instant depression of losing a game must maybe hit, hits a bit early whilst obviously, you know, the game is still technically going on, but as soon as it's gone out for a goal kick and that... Having to line up for that goal kick and, yeah. and go through the motions of setting yourself in formation to receive it. Now the assistant manager well, shouting at you to make sure you're at the right position yeah. and get that yeah. second ball and you're like, come on, yeah. there's not going to be a second ball. Michael, I, I'm a... I, I quite like that this is an anomaly in, in the laws of the game. Quite rightly, I suppose, thunderous, violent tackles are largely outlawed these days, but you seem to be able to get away with it when a striker's about to shoot from eight yards. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if you get really desperate, you're allowed to be a little <laughs> bit more physical. This is related to to kind of the first thing I thought of when you when you mentioned we were talking about the unwritten laws of the game, which is almost the same thing in a different area of the pitch, which is when a player's shielding the ball towards the end of the the game near the corner flag, the opponents have completely free licence to do whatever they want to that player. Oh, really? So there's a great example from about 10 years ago of a a Chelsea-Liverpool game where Yossi Ben-Ayoun is trying to run down the clock and (laughs) Jose Bossinger comes up and just boots him in the back. Oh, yeah. Literally kicks him over the corner flag and out of play. Yeah, like studs, like a proper sort of violent shove with his studs. Yeah, and, Yeah. and the extraordinary thing is I mean, it's clearly a red card offence, hmm. but the referee gives a free kick the other way. So oh, yeah. Bossingwa gets the, the decision. And the oh, weird right. thing is, if, if you look at Bossingwa, he just acts like it's all normal. It's hmm. almost like he knows, OK, there's an unwritten rule here. I can just kick Ben Ayun in the back and I'll get a free kick for it because no one really likes shielding the ball near the corner flag. And he gets away with it. It's brilliant. I sense the reason here is that the referees can sense the uh, the um, 
tackling players' frustration at the whole situation here because they know they can't get the ball. And it must be just really irritating. So they're, they're, it's a level of empathy, perhaps, an admirable level of empathy on, on the uh, on the referee's side. Dan, we have a listener suggestion from Lawrence McClelland. He says, um, uh, what about the unwritten law of applauding header back to the goalkeeper? Um, this is probably the 18th time we've mentioned this on the podcast, but it's something I'm always happy to go back to. Uh, it's instinctive, isn't it? It's, it's in our DNA. It doesn't matter how, how advanced the game becomes, how often the laws change, we will always applaud a header back to the goalkeeper. Yeah, I don't know why that. Why is that seen as the most gentlemanly, classy, part, uh, defensive move that a player can pull off in a game? It's very a weird one, isn't it? But it's, it's mostly uh, relief. I think it's mostly relief. The ball is yeah, safe. Hmm. That's true. Yeah, but it's like it's not as, it's not as thrilling as obviously booting it over the stand or you know to to, to get rid of the danger or anything like that. But it's just uh, I guess yeah, just it's nice and it's nice and safely nestled in the goalkeeper's hands, and it's very British, isn't it? Our final examination of between the lines of the laws of the game, Michael, leads us inevitably, and I say this with a heavy sigh, to shithousery. <laughs> it's it's a terrible word, isn't it? It 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 not only is it a terrible word, but the, the discourse around shithousery and shit houses and shit housing is really annoying. Yeah, I completely agree. I I mean, I don't know whether I should admit this, but I've got this word muted on Twitter because <laughs> I find it I find any discussion of it not just annoying but it it feels like really desperate you know to find examples of a player who you know hides the ball when the opponents are looking to take a quick free kick do you know what I mean just like really kind of minor stuff that we we now have to kind of dish out sarcastic applause emojis to um yeah I I, I hate the word and I don't particularly like the concept <laughs> my anger about this is grammatically specific I'm happy with shit house as a noun and historically, as far as my understanding goes, I haven't bothered to look into this, but historically, shithouse is someone who is massive and violent or someone who is snidey and and sort of almost cowardly in their violence. Those, those two acceptable uses. But then when it got into kind of abstract nouns and, and verbs, I, I'm just not into it. And But by extension, I'm a little bit confused about the fetishizing of the dark arts i i, I find mm. that very odd it's interesting isn't it yeah i mean people there's lots of people who seem to get uh seem to have a real sort of obsession with it um i'm trying to think of recent examples of uh you know proponents of the dark arts well sergio ramos for example yeah or maybe this i think it's i think it's better with all that there's more subtle ones maybe like a james, okay. james ward prowse strikes me as a uh, uh, okay, yeah. someone you know he's he recently scuffed up penalty spots and you know got got Wilfred Sahar sent off by uh, winding him up incessantly and things like that. So maybe it's about it's about tapping into uh, the fact that this player, one of this player's roles is to wind up the opposition. And since winding up the opposition has now become a core part of, of the football experience in 2020, mm-hmm. perhaps, that's where, perhaps that's why we're celebrating it more than we ever did. Yeah, I think so. I do think so. I can I can understand why it, uh, why it turns you off because there is a real <laughs> I don't know there, there there does seem to be a real sort of uh, attempt to glorify it really. But I guess it's just like anything too many too much tribalism. And obviously, if you're the uh, fan of the team that uh, who has a successful, uh, like I said, I, I, I wanted to use shithouse, but I don't want to make you upset. Um, you know, a successful <laughs> proponent of the dark arts, then uh, then I guess you you know you see it as something to be glorified. I think it's just the soft S in shithousery that makes it more annoying. I still like shithouse as a word. I feel that has quite... Uh... Do you come up with a new term? Uh, you know, this is your chance, you know? Well, no, I mean, I think the fact that it is a relatively new term is the most annoying thing about it. I'm a traditionalist when it comes to the language of football. Um, and creating new words is simply not for me. I'm not into neologisms. Um, so let, it's time we left shithousery behind. But also don't let it become part of the history. It's a strange one. We need to talk about the arbiters 
of the of the laws of the game and indeed the and the unwritten laws of the game which are the referees we did an episode on goalkeepers and we, we talked about how a, a maligned species they are uh, michael but i think referees tend to get it even worse before we before we really get into the um into the meat and potatoes of this i want to introduce this section with the worst ever song about refereeing which i finally discovered uh, after lots of youtube searching and uh, this is um this is the ian campbell folk group I'm in charge of this here match with whistle, no book and stopwatch And I'll keep you up to scratch cause I'm the referee Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Twenty years of dedication, training hard to face the nation Learning rules with application, that's what makes a referee That was, um... What was they called? Ian Campbell and Friends, that was. <laughs> Although I'm quite surprised that Ian Campbell's got any friends. <laughs> Fantasy football pretty much uh, produced all the bands we'd ever need to uh, say about that particular song. But, Michael, would you say that that's an appropriately weedy song for referee? I, on one hand, want to kind of support the respect campaign and all that, but also find <laughs> referees kind of like slightly tragic, slightly hapless figures that I struggle yeah. to have a great deal of sympathy for. So yeah, that that is a fitting song, Dan. There, are, I mean, there are so many obvious things we can talk about referees, and Mike Dean. We'll we'll, we'll come onto him later. So there's very obvious mm. things that we can we can pin on referees as as at their expense. But there are there are kind of things that get glossed over. For example, Dan, we don't talk enough about how referees wear pulled up socks. Like, why do they need to wear a kit? That's <laughs> <laughs> really, it's very true. It's very true. I mean, it's you know, I would. Uh... In that same sort of thing, I'd like to, I mean, I think it's been, you know, they would have probably seen this online maybe when it came to life, maybe last mm. season or whatever, but Kevin Friend, um, for one game, wore like a pair of elite Nike Vapors, you know, a sort of £300 football boot made with all oh, sorts right. of, you know, fly knit, lightweight technology. What and colour were they? They were black, so thank oh, you. Okay. And in a very nice, you know, a very much classy touch, they, you know, more than a classy touch, really. I think he had rainbow laces in as well, which is nice to support <laughs> that. But Absolutely. Why does Kevin Friend need Nike Mercurial Vapors? <laughs> I, I'm fairly sure Copper Monday R's are the standard issue. So he's yeah, exactly. he probably got a stern warning from uh, Mike Riley. Oh, sorry, to give him his full name, Referees Chief Mike Riley. <laughs> Speaking of whom, he presides over, Michael, the, the elite group of, of referees, the PGMOL. And uh, the general consensus, which I don't actually agree with, is that refereeing standards have dropped in this country. Now, I hear, I hear, I see this opinion bandied around a lot, but what is it actually based on? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't really have an answer for that. And it seems to be said by the type of people who I don't think watch much football from other countries. <laughs> so don't really know the standard elsewhere. I mean, the, the slightly frustrating thing I, I find is that a lot of former referees seem to kind of really go in on the current yeah. mob and be quite yeah. bitchy. And like, the obvious offender here is Keith Hackett who um, <laughs> has just constantly been writing quite, like, unnecessarily rude columns about referees it's school for settling years. On, it's school-settling yeah. on a personal level, isn't it? It's not really about refereeing standards at all. Yeah, I, I found my, my personal favourite um, from earlier in this year, and I'm not going to be able to read this without bursting into laughter because <laughs> I just find it incredibly funny. So I'll just read you the first two paragraphs, which are... Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> which are... <laughs> I shuddered to hear the news that Andy Madley and David Coote failed fitness tests and therefore missed the chance to join Felipe's 
sorry, join FIFA's internal list of elite referees. I've been inundated with calls from former referees asking, what kind of message does this send? The simple answer is a bad one. (laughs) (laughs) Referees failing fitness tests is, is, is so frowned upon. And yet they're so obviously borderline as well when it comes to that fitness test. Um, Yeah, I just, it's the whole thing that baffles me. There's clearly no metric for refereeing standards dropping. So I think people can just say it and, and, and get away with it. Dan, does in a wider sense, do you think there's just a willful ignorance now of how hard it must be to referee? Because if we were to accept that it's a difficult job and that they are going to make decisions, then we wouldn't be allowed to complain about them. So there's a there's a bit of a paradox there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, goodness, like we've got, you know, we've got our laws of the game changing and, uh, you know, our, we've, we, I know we're trying not to, not to speak about it as a band word on this podcast, but obviously there's VAR to add in as well. It's, uh, mm. but yeah, just... They've, they've got so much to deal with. And even if, uh, you know, you've got, like I said, you have one camp calling for common sense um, to use their common oh, yes. sense when doing a thing, which, which is obviously great. But on the same time, you know, how does you ask that? But obviously they're supposed to be they're supposed to be a standard of refereeing. So then they've got to try and marry that with consistency. Yeah. So they right. can't even, you know, if, if, if you have to choose, which one would you have? If you could oh only goodness. have consistency or common sense, which one would you have for the rest of time? I'd go with common sense because it'd be funnier. <laughs> Definitely fine. That would be more annoying. That would, you'd, I, I would go with consistency all, all the way. I, Coxie, you're a consistency man, surely. Uh, I am. Well, I mean, I think an, an interesting can't, example... You can only choose one. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I would go for consistency, obviously. But I think there's... <laughs> I mean, maybe a good example of this kind of debate in one issue is the idea, or, or maybe the, the, the fact, if you like, that punishments are partly influenced by what stage the game is at. You know, there has been a long-standing belief that in the first five minutes, players can get away with a little bit more. And there's a sense that if a referee, you know, books someone for a tackle, OK, he's set a precedent. He'll have to book every foul. And I think we do kind of accept that, do we? Yeah. I mean, players, you know, they buy into it. The number of times you see a player making a foul and getting a, a booking and, and they're gesturing that it's their first foul. Mm. <laughs> we, we, I mean, it doesn't matter. There's nothing in the laws. Of the, well, I suppose there's accumulation. But if it's a bad foul, it's a, it's a yellow card, isn't it? But players are convinced that they can persuade the referee that, you know, you get a free one to start with. I haven't seen any players kind of push that envelope. I haven't seen sort of any players saying, well, that was only my fourth. <laughs> why yeah. is it only one I, 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 maybe maybe that does make sense but um uh, coxie i think i think punditry uh, i think i mean we do have referees on punditry panels now and, and we'll talk about that and the problems of that a little bit later but i think punditry also is to blame for our perception of referees because most of the pundit chat about refereeing decisions is very unhelpfully vague you have words like borderline or touch and go or a suspicion of handball or a hint of a push in the area or you know six of one half a dozen of the other um, if the pundits can't make a decision on the these things and they're happy to use vague language then why should the referees you know have to get absolutely everything 100% right yeah I think it's a fair point and yeah I think punditry around refereeing is is quite bad in general I mean like you say we now do have sometimes referees on on BT Sport for example but you you end up with this slightly weird situation where you know Peter Walton will explain why something isn't a red card or something and then he'll go back to the 
the studio and the presenter will say, well, what do you think of that, lads? And they'll say, no, I don't agree with that at all. Which kind of <laughs> seems to undermine the point of having a referee there. <laughs> I think even the, even the, like, the analysis of refereeing decisions um, seems quite futile to me. It seems like a waste of airtime most of the time. You could be talking about actual football. But as listener Leo Watkins uh, writes in, he says, I absolutely love the analysis of a referee's view of an incident where they dim out everything other than his field of view, like he's some sort of mad lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really good. Um, and it, um, that's a situation where someone somewhere has gone, well, we've got this graphic, it's going to look really cool. And yet it bears no relation to physics, eyesight or anything. And, it, and the whole result is utterly absurd. It's l- like a game of Metal Gear Solid. The whole thing is just absolutely ridiculous. So, so I think the, the coverage of refereeing decisions is, is, is beyond help. And uh, I think we're going to just have to live with it. But uh, I, I really wish people would just accept that it's a really difficult job. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you could be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. On to more fun matters, though, Dan. Uh, mm. Examples of refereeing body language. I, I, I understand, though, that some of these gestures are in the kind of protocol of refereeing. It's, it's to make decisions clear to everyone. That's players, spectators, people watching on TV, managers, whatever. But some of them are really funny and some of them require a little bit of picking apart. For example, I put it to you. I need you to get this in your head straight away. Uh, the, the gesture for nothing doing uh, like a penalty that they've decided is, is, is not going to be a penalty so it's kind of arms swept across the chest isn't it yeah have you got that i presume you're doing it you're performing it right now i'm doing it right now yeah yeah but uh, but you know amateur refereeing um observers will get that mixed up with the no more um gesture (laughs) that they give to players when they're saying right i'm gonna book you but uh, i'm gonna book you again if you do this again it's the gestures are very similar but also very different and i want people to understand that so i think nothing more uh, sorry, nothing doing for penalty decisions is where you swipe your arms across your chest, palms facing outwards. Whereas no more, you need to be have a clenched fist but with a raised index finger and then you're <laughs> doing the same gesture. It's it's very important, but they, they, they're both very emphatic in their own ways. Listener Will Hardy, who's six foot nine, by the way, Michael, uh, he says he's a big fan of the... Um, when, when referees roll their hands to indicate when the, the ball was moving at a free kick. But... We have a similar confusion here because that gets that gets irresponsibly mixed up with the substitution gesture, doesn't it? Yeah, I actually remember Didier Drogba sometimes did that gesture for when he wanted the pass played quicker, which is oh. quite a, a weird one. Like if there was a boy over the top and he'd stopped his run, he used to do that kind of rotation. Did he get taken run. off about two minutes later? <laughs> Sadly not. Yeah. Sadly um, not. Mm. Uh, Dom writes in, Dan, saying nothing beats a massively over-exaggerated comeback from an offside position gesture. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a real that's that's artistry, isn't it? The arcing of the hand, and you have to curve your hand in in harmony with the with the arcing of your arm. It's really quite something, and and that's purely for fans, isn't it? Uh, and I, yeah. I, I really like that one. Yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Um, although it does. When does that also get... Is there confusion that was sometimes just the come here to be booked? 
uh, gesture uh, as well. A bit, I, you know? I guess it's a, it's a very close cousin of the ball curved out of play at a corner gesture. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But maybe that's the linesman's remit. I, I'm not really sure. Um, other things I've noticed, Michael... Um, <laughs> I only spotted this the other day. When some players are kind of surrounding a referee in an act of dissent, sometimes some of them put their hands behind their back <laughs> to look kind of less threatening and more respectful, which is really weird because you're shouting in a referee's face, but you got your hands behind your back. So it's like, sir, sir, and then shouting in his face. Um, I, I really like that one. Yeah, I associate that with kind of mid-90s Serie A, I think. It was just <laughs> always a kind of real old-school Italian thing. I mean, I, I find the kind of... Dissent and, and discussion with referee uh, with referees quite an interesting area because there's been a couple of instances in recent years where players have really complained that referee has given it back. So there was one last year with um, uh, Dan Gosling talking about John Moss who said, I thought he was a disgrace. The comments that he made, especially to me and one other player, talking <laughs> yes. about the relegation zone and you're still in the relegation zone. You're <laughs> having one. Your team's having one. This and that. And it was very, very disrespectful. Which I just... I, I want to know how the comments come up because it kind of links back to that... Um, do you remember with Mark Clattenberg and Adam Lallana, where yeah. Lallana was... Oh, you're, giving... you're, you're, you're different now you've played for England or something yeah, like that. Yeah, which I think just sounds like quite fun, yeah. funny little banter. But, I mean, Southampton lodged an official complaint about that, yeah. which just yeah. seems... It makes me feel sorry for referees that they're constantly abused, presumably, by the players for the whole game. And they mm. can't have, like, a, a kind of... A little bit of a go back, maybe with a wink or something, without being reported to. Oh, the I'm Premier sure it League. goes on. In my head, he was saying those comments to Dan Gosling as he was kind of running alongside him as the ball was going up the pitch, and sort of saying it out the side of his mouth, just as it came into his head. Um, yeah, it's fairly charming. I suppose there's an impartiality aspect to it, but I also don't care about that. So, <laughs> the real kind of A-list area of referees' body language, uh, Michael, is is the way they brandish their cards. First of all, when it comes to cards, I, I'm a I really hate when they issue like a yellow card apiece after a little sort of bout of handbags because that just feels like no due diligence has gone into that. I agree. It's uh, it's almost never deserved, is it? It, it usually <laughs> should be just one to one of the players or even a red to one of the players and, and a yellow to the others. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like you often get the no more gesture at the end of that, do you? Yeah, possibly. Well, no, no, because you can't say no more after you give the yellow card because that is that is by by definition a caution. So okay. yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't give a yellow and then say no more because that's that's implied by the yellow card. That's that's fairly obvious. Dan, we're actually we were into kind of a new uh, little situation with card issuing. Is that VAR now can of course downgrade or help downgrade a red to a yellow. So we're we're seeing some very strange interactions here um, between. A referee and a player. So we saw the other, I can't remember what game it was, but a, a red was downgraded to a yellow. And the, the player didn't really know how to react. It was a kind of like a nod of, yeah, cheers, thanks. And it was a really weird kind of transaction between, um, between referee and player that we've never seen before. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of, um, I think the player was almost still just trying to, trying to, uh, trying to claim that they were innocent as well. So yeah. obviously because they've been given a red card, but in the the yellow, it's like, oh, right, fair enough. So their whole sort of legal defence, if you want to call it, mm. some, treat it like it was some sort of uh, court case, just sort of dissipated. All <laughs> like, oh, right, fair enough. We'll take that, you know, that metaphorical rap on the knuckles. That's fine then. Um, yeah, there's a kind of hint of apology from the referee while they're doing it as well, saying, "Yep, yeah, okay, fair enough." Um, but on, <laughs> on the on the subject of car brandishing, um, Herr Nguyen um, alerted me to this on, on Twitter earlier. I'd never heard about this before, Michael, and it's utterly sensational. It's worth looking up on Google just for the picture alone. I'll introduce it to you and see if you can guess what happened. Thomas Metzen, 
uh, in a Bundesliga 2 clash between Mainz and St Pauli back in 2008, um, was faced with a situation where one player smashed a free kick against an opponent who hadn't retreated far enough. Uh, do you know what he did next? Uh, no, I can't begin to imagine. He booked both players, but by taking two yellow cards simultaneously out of both <laughs> breast pockets. <laughs> it, I, I looked at a picture of it earlier and I was just I, I, mind blown. I, I've never seen, obviously a nef- referee has never done this before. Uh, um, and it caused quite a stir in, in Germany by all accounts. Um, uh, he kind of apologised for it in the end because a lot of people were accusing him of kind of stealing the limelight with it. He said that that was a mistake on my part. I let myself be carried away, which doesn't sound like that sounds like a very it sounds like a decision he made to have two a yellow card in each pocket. Personally, it doesn't sound something you do in the in the heat of the moment. Yeah, um, just playing the occasion, not the game, wasn't he? Yeah, he earned the nickname uh, Eiffel Django uh, because uh, Eiffel is the region of Germany where he's from, and Django for its wild west connotations because the implication that he marched up to the player and took out both his pistols um but um yeah there's video of it and there's pictures of it and the whole thing is absurd and i really encourage people to look at it because it's um it's quite a novelty and yet i also think it's something that should be encouraged and perhaps um we should see again quick technical point dan um mm-hmm. the disciplinary tightrope so a classic situation being say like a fullback getting an early yellow card uh, I feel like there should be a threshold for that after which it no longer becomes the disciplinary tightrope you're simply being booked how 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 late does it go? Hmm, walking that disciplinary tire. I mean, I feel like whenever someone is booked, they have to have obviously been booked early doors, and then the mm. second booking has to come within sort of ten fifteen minutes, maybe. And I feel maybe like they only have time. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, because it's very much sort of the. Uh, I feel like it's the commentators who uh, who pretty much you know metaphorically place that player on that tightrope, um, and will always make. So it's a first half thing, Michael. Would yeah. you say? I mean, you 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 can't be you can't be booked in say the like, the seventy seventh minute and then say, wow, he's got to be careful now. Yeah, I agree. It's very much a, an early thing. I think it particularly applies to a fullback, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Who's about to be given a torrid time? Um, yeah, the two things kind of go very much hand in hand. I'm, I'll, I'll say twenty minutes if we can have to adjudicate on this anyway. Michael, a preoccupation about referees, which I feel might be rather fading from view is, first of all, where they're from. <laughs> Your likes of Tring, Orpington, Chester Street. I don't feel like we don't hear about where referees are from anymore, with the poor exception of, of Anthony Taylor, who's, who we seem to be reminded is from Altrincham at least once a year. Um, uh, but this, this taps into people who care about which referee has been appointed for their team's match. That is an unnecessary thing to get upset about, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I must say I'm... I, I can identify maybe half the Premier League referees, but I have no real opinion on how they referee or what mm. their past mistakes have mm. been. You know, if, if someone's uh, pointed to a certain game and people say, oh, he gave us that, you know, dodgy penalty last year or something. I, I'm amazed people can remember that. But yeah, the, the place name thing is is interesting. And it's, it's good you mentioned Tring because that was home to not just Graham Pohl, but also Graham Barber. So oh. it resulted in a, a great intro to a... Um, a Guardian article from 20 years ago from our very own Dom Fifield, mm-hmm. uh, which started, um, should Sunderland's unlikely challenge for a Champions League berth peter out, Mackham's may point accusing fingers less at their team's few shortcomings and more at an innocuous commuter town in Hertfordshire, which <laughs> I really like because, you know, if you're going to be a referee and, and, you know, the place name comes up, 
an innocuous commuter town in Hertfordshire seems perfect, doesn't it? Because yeah, no one can yeah. really accuse you of bias either way on that, I would think. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I passed through Tring on the train once and I was just suddenly very excited. This is where Graham <laughs> Paul's from. I know, I know this place. And I, sh- you know, I don't know who's going to get the statue between Graham Paul and Graham Barber, but I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out. Dan, the, the idea that people get upset about, um, you know, when they see a refereeing appointment for a game, they go, oh no, we've got him again. Um, that That's, pro- you know, that's, clearly quite irrational you know based on something silly but you never get the opposite you never you never see saying oh thank god oh thank <laughs> god we've got andre mariner this week oh yes it's gonna be fine um surely surely that's that's how things should work surely some referees should be a, a harbinger of something good as well oh, apologies to them but i think people who get annoyed about that are very silly individuals indeed um <laughs> very very of all the things i mean you know there's obviously for some people there's a perpetual state of being being irritated about things in football mm. that uh and you know, referees are obviously kind of have uh, play a role of sort of a convenient, uh, convenient scapegoat, obviously for uh, for for all kind of situations. So, but yeah, to um, and, and unfortunately, I guess as they sort of uh, perform that role, no one's ever going to really be happy about their um, about their appointment, which, like you said, seems just bizarre, really, when you think about it. Well, I mean, I guess it's another reminder um, that uh, referees are, are fallible human beings who, who may well have certain prejudices against certain teams based on what's happened in the past. So referees are human. And uh, that leads us to our next listener contribution section, uh, which is people who have seen referees out in the wild. Um, Ethan Henson, Michael, says, I once saw Kevin Friend driving his Audi. I gave way to him around some parked cars, but didn't even get a cursory nod. Arrogance. <laughs> Oh, that surprises me. You think? I mean, referees are used to kind of gesturing, aren't they? So yeah. that is a disappointment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would like to have seen. I'd like to have seen. Um, yeah, a mere wave of the arm. Yeah, uh, Kevin Friend, of course, has been seen elsewhere, hasn't he, Dan? Yes, yes, I did come across once a. I'm trying to think. So I kind of found a picture of um, Kevin Friend's uh, papped at what was has been told <laughs> as a, a trance rave, um, <laughs> which something about. I mean. Like I said, I spoke earlier with Kevin Friend's personalised football boots, but he also does have a kind of uh, a kind of sort of a crew cut that you could set your watch by. Um, mm. <laughs> and but uh, this picture, I mean, we've got you've got Kevin Friend sort of uh, in a crowd with his mobile phone, so he's obviously trying to get a you know trying to get a photo of whatever's going on, very into whoever he's seeing. I mean, I, I must admit, I'm not sure it's a trance rave because that doesn't look like the kind of uh, behaviour. But yeah, of all the somehow a, a referee at a concert just doesn't seem doesn't seem right really I, just, I, I don't know on the subject of celebrity referees michael which which i feel is a slightly harsh term because uh, they should be afforded a little bit of the line now, after all they're central to a game they're and they're very well paid some of them are very well known we all in we all seem to indulge in a little bit of um celebrity referee celebration so uh, i feel like there should be an element of give and take but on the other hand freddie parkinson writes in and says graham pole's daughter went to my secondary school my mates used to brandish a fake yellow card to her in hallways until they were threatened with expulsion thought you might like <laughs> Daughter, that's horrible. That is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to presumably had to make the yellow cards in advance. It's a brandish to her in the hallway. That must did, have been did, did, did they waggle it with a thumb and finger? I know. I want to hear more about the technique. Oh, oh, kids are terrible, aren't they? Was oh. this after the 2006 World Cup incident? I would. It would appear so. Yes. Oh my word! That must that, be I mean, that's, Imagine, that's horrible. Imagine the sort of headmaster kind of sort of summoning him in and saying, "There's been an incident." <laughs> <laughs> that's just. Can't. 
watch any of this. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. He 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 made the rod for his own back there. I, I'm sorry to the entire pole family here, but still, your fault. Peter Walton on BT. Dan, I feel like he's become an unlikely TV cult hero because he's not mm. a natural TV figure, but yeah, he's there to do a job. But um, I don't know, he, he seems quite a sort of slightly tragic figure. Like, you see his see in the bottom of the screen, voice of Peter Walton, and it's just like, <laughs> oh no, what's gonna what's he gonna say now? It's, it's like kind of the bingo card for watching a sort of a big game on BT, isn't yeah. it? It's like, say yeah. the line, say the line, say the line. And what do you think, Peter Walton? Yay! Because <laughs> it seems to have sort of just, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's the first thing I'm waiting for. I mean, I, and obviously I think Peter Walton obviously kind of seared himself in kind of the football consciousness with that accidental cut to him when he was just grinning at a screen. That was incredible. That was incredible. Obviously that, that yeah. sort of cemented his legacy and sort of made him uh, put yeah, in the forefront you- of things, but... But it yay. was the purest. It was one of the purest kind of glimpses of someone's face I've ever seen. That was a former Premier League referee who spent his entire career having to be impartial, and then finally, unbeknownst to him, was spotted for a fraction of a second, absolutely loving football. It's really <laughs> nice. It, it, it was Spurs nice. Ajax, wasn't it? And, it, and, yes. and they accidentally yeah. cut to him in his little box, and it was it was absolutely brilliant. Michael, I think you might enjoy this. Um, this is a clip of Mark Clattenberg being interviewed um, when he visited some budding young referees at the Irish F back in 2015 and this these were his words of wisdom as it uh, before he spoke to them to give them an insight of a how i've done it and b just give them a little bit of inspiration that with a bit of hard work and a bit of effort they can try and achieve some sort of goals that are either better than mine or equal or just slightly less What's more inspirational to someone saying that you might achieve a goal that's just slightly less than mine what a weird set of words they were that's, I mean, that is real David Brent. It reminds me of David Brent saying that he, he has to go out with a woman who's, um, you know, as intelligent as him or slightly less. <laughs> I think that's the comparison I went for there. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, I think Clattenburg is perhaps um, a kind of dark horse, Dan, in the kind of celebrity referee sex. I know Mike Dean quite rightly gets a, a lot of the attention with his theatrics and his, and his body language, but Clattenburg appears to be have a certain way with words and um, this is an interview uh, an answer he gave it uh, to a question about mike dean he said he's actually one of the better guys people call him arrogant and that he pulls stupid faces on a pitch but that's just mike dean you take that out of somebody they're not the same referee <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. i can't believe it like, he's, oh. he's mike dean got the wayne rooney reference essentially which is if you take that out of his game he's not the same referee after that clattenberg goes, goes into what i can only describe as richard key's territory he says i've known mike for 13 years in the Premier League and he's actually one of the blokes you can trust trust me they're not all like that <laughs> dark forces that's very that's very keasy so yeah Clattenburg I mean there's Clattenburg I mean from what I can remember was a perfectly key Dan um, I just there was there's just elements of him that seem to get people's backs up I love the sort of thinly veiled he's actually one of the nice guys I mean that's that's really really <laughs> nice isn't it about poor poor old Mike Dean um, but yeah, yeah, Clattenburg, I think people just seem to have a sort of a, a problem with Mark Clattenburg having ambition on different things. I mean, I think he, I feel like there were stories written about him having a hair transplant, which, you know, if he wants to have a hair transplant, fair enough. Absolutely. Um, and obviously, 
obviously going on, you know, leaving the Premier League for for pastures new, um, to you know, to, for more sort of um, lucrative opportunities. There's tattoos as well, you know. As soon as that came out there, which always made me wonder whether there was some some dark forces in, in back, making sure that the uh, that that made it out there, you know, so that to sort of tarnish the Clattenburg image. I do have some very interesting chat for you, which is about referees' whistles. How much do you think you know about referees' whistles, Dan? Uh, not very much. Okay. Well, I, you can have such brand names as the Acme Thunderer, which costs you about a fiver. That's that's the original and best. Acme, the referee, uh, referee's whistle manufacturers, they were established back in 1870. So that's your real kind of classic. That's like a classic car equivalent of a referee's whistle. Mid-range, Michael, you get the Fox 40 Classic, which, is, which as, as you know, has a, a, a P-less three-chamber design and has... Um, and it can achieve up to 115 decibels. That's the kind of the mid-range. You might use that for your county-level referees. But um, they get very sophisticated. Um, the top-of-the-range whistle at the moment is the Molten Valkine, which uh, retails at around £60. Uh, it's an incredible-looking thing. It doesn't really look much a traditional whistle at all, but it can achieve 127.5 decibels. I'll read you some of the gumph because um, this is kind of broadly equivalent to some of the stuff you see with football boots and football shirts. The upper resonance tube produces a 4.15 kilohertz tone, and the lower resonance tube creates a 3.67 kilohertz tone. That's within your levels of tolerance, is it, Michael? Yeah, this is all news to me. I didn't know that there were brands and decibel levels to be compared. Trust me, there's more. In addition... The largely protruding fin controls the flow of air to produce a quick, thick and clear-cut sound, including high-order harmonic tones stretching as far as four octaves, uh, in brackets patented. Dan, this is incredible (laughs) stuff, isn't it? Where can I buy a replica one? Uh, uh, online. Is there a replica one for fans to buy? Because this is what it sounds like. Oh yeah, it was like a, is there like a fan version for fifteen quid, which isn't quite yeah. as good. I, I really hope so. It doesn't fit <laughs> quite as tightly. Um, this is where it gets very silly, though. Uh, uh, the molten Valkine has a unique flip grip mechanism. This revolutionary new type of grip allows referees to maintain a pace of the game and instantly access the whistle even while running. That's great. <laughs> Uh, yeah. ergonomic it's fantastic um you're, you're probably wondering where the name valkine comes from i'm sure yes oh yeah well uh, it's a kind of combination of things really uh, valk which is the dutch word for, for the peregrine falcon um <laughs> uh, the motif of which appears on the on the whistle um but it also um it uh, also symbolizes the referee's posture with keen eyes watching the pitch so valk keen so falcon eagle-eyed Wow. Incredible, isn't it? 60 quid for a whistle. That's, that's a lot. I mean, it's, um, it reminds me of a, a story a friend was telling me recently where I think in his Sunday league days he was um, playing for a game. The teams were both there, but the referee had to pull out for some reason. So I think one of the players had to referee the game, um, mm. realised they didn't have a whistle, so went to the local kind of news agent, said... <laughs> do you have a whistle of course news agents don't stock whistles but what they did stock was i believe something like the beano which came free with a dennis the menace whistle so this (laughs) sunday league game was refereed by i believe a very high-pitched dennis the menace branded whistle but yeah it's not it's not the molten valkyne but you know surely do the job well, that brings us to the end of our thoroughly entertaining look at uh, uh, the laws of the game and those who are employed to enforce them. But uh, we're not finishing just yet because I have a I have a cliche quiz for you. Bringing it back, um, the format remains the same. Whoever answers first correctly gets the point. There's three up for grabs. And here is question one. Um, 
What is it that neutrals hate about an early red card? Spoils the game. I need a slightly longer answer. Uh, spoils the spectacle of the game? I don't yes, know. I'll take that. It ends the game as a spectacle. Ah, yeah. 1-0 to Barnes. Second question. What look do players give a referee when they think they should be awarded a penalty? Uh, uh, what look do players give a referee when they think they should be awarded a penalty? Begins with a P. Hmm. This has gone no. well. Uh, are, are, are you giving up? Because we can't yeah. just have this. For, yeah. Uh, the word is plaintive. You're looking for plaintive. Plaintive okay. look. Okay. Um, Barnsley still leads 1-0 going into the final question. Um, when you see a referee pointing to various areas of pitch before they, uh, before they book a player, uh, finally, what is this process known as? Totting up procedure. I will take that. It is the totting oh. up process. Yes. Okay. So that ends 1-1. Yeah. I don't have any more questions because all three of those were already tenuous enough. I don't have any more questions about referees. We'll have to call it a draw. Uh, thank you both for joining me. That was actually quite good fun. Um, cheers, Michael. Uh, enjoy your Netcom foot golf. Thank you. And can I just say that on the totting up procedure, I have yep. once in my life tried to cross-reference the pointing with the uh, stat zone chalkboard of a player's particular fouls to see whether it tallies up. Um, oh, good. I won't do that again. Yeah, I feel like referees don't really point to the actual incidents, do they? Thanks a lot, Dan, also. Um, pleasure to have you back. I'm sure you've learned a lot about whistles today. Yeah, thank you so much. I cannot wait to... Uh... Save up for your molten Valkeen. Yeah, yeah. I, I, know what I, I know what's going on my Christmas list. <laughs> uh, well, in the words of Mike Dean, off you pop.